over a year ago, we started a sermon series through the Gospel of Mark. And uh, we have been tracking with Mark, and we've taken breaks here and there. And today we are going to return to that series, and we're going to conclude it during this season of Lent. We have three chapters left to go, chapters 14, 15, and 16. These chapters are all surrounding the last few days of Jesus' life leading up to his crucifixion and his resurrection. Uh, Mark 13, where we left off, I just want to circle back really quickly to that passage. Uh, in Mark 13, Jesus is warning the disciples about what it is that they can anticipate. He said, hard times are coming. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be arrested. And he even said that family members are going to turn on one another and betray one another unto death. Can you imagine that? Family members turning on one another uh, even if it means that their loved one is, is going to be killed. He said, you're going to experience all of that. And then he said, I I'm going to be coming back. I'm going to be taken from you. I'm going to come back, and I'm going to come back on the clouds in power and glory. Keep watch for when that happens. And so this message to the disciples was both uh, hopeful and foreboding, and as we continue now today in Mark chapter 14, what we're going to see is that Jesus experienced himself everything that he said his disciples could anticipate experiencing. He was persecuted. He was arrested. He was betrayed by one of his, you might say, his own family. One of his inner, disciple, inner circle turned on him even unto death. It's one of the things that I, I love about Jesus. Jesus does not um, sit safely on a hill somewhere far away and call us to charge and, and go forward. He's a, a leader who leads from the front. He doesn't ask us to do anything, endure anything that he himself has not done or endured. And so he can say to us, follow me. He goes first. So uh, join me as we pray for the reading of God's word. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for the gift of our salvation purchased with the blood of your son. We ask that you would strengthen us with your spirit today, strengthen us by your word, nourish us that we might be better equipped to follow you and to serve you and to worship you. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A quick word about Mark chapter 14 before we dive in. Uh, Mark communicates in a couple ways. He communicates, obviously, by the content of what he writes, but he all, also communicates by the structure of what he writes. He structures his gospel in a very uh, intentional way. And what we're reading today is what scholars call a Markin sandwich. Uh, Mark is, is making a sandwich. And, and what that means is he's going to introduce a story. And then he's going to interrupt that story with another story. There's a second story, completely different story. And then he's going to return and come back to that first story and the reason he's doing this, he's inserting a story right into the middle, is because that story is meant to act as a commentary on the other story. 
So he's inviting us as we read this to do some comparing and contrasting. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going we're to take it one story at a time. So we start at Mark chapter 14, verse 1. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and to kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. It is never the right time to do the wrong thing. It's never the right time to do the wrong thing. Mark chapter 14 opens not with thugs or mercenaries or hooligans or first century gangsters. Mark 14 opens with priests, chief priests. It opens with teachers of the law, scribes, which makes these words so, so hard for us to understand and hard to, to hear. These priests are conspiring on how to commit murder. It just does, it's hard to reconcile how is this possible? And who is it that they're trying to, to conspire on who to commit murder against? Is it somebody who is torturing people? Is it somebody who there's just a, a wake of, of terror in, in, their, in their past? No, it's somebody who's guilty of healing the sick, curing people who are blind, who are lame, casting demons out of people, somebody who's guilty of showing special attention to the, the poor and the marginalized. And these Chief priests, these men of God, these people who have studied the word of God their entire lives, who have read it, who have prayed it, who have preached it, these men who have led the people of God are conspiring secretly on how to kill this man. And while doing so, they're telling themselves that they're doing God a service. God, Jesus' father, the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we're, we're serving him by killing Jesus. That's what they're telling themselves. They think that they are the, the heroes. It's hard to reconcile how this is possible, but then you think through history, and we see it time and time again, don't we? Godly people religious people, pious people acting in the most devilish of ways. And we wonder, how is it possible that such godly people, such pious people, such religious people can act so shamefully and behave so badly and act so wickedly, all the while telling themselves that, that they're doing the church a service? That they are the heroes of the story, that they're, they're honoring God. It's easy for us to, to point fingers at other people and see where this has happened. But we are not uh, innocent in this. In our Reformed tradition, we have our own skeletons in our, our closet of the past. Back in the, the 16th century, in the Reformation, 
You know, there was a group of Christians that the reformers persecuted. Their name was Anabaptists. That's not a name that we're as familiar with today. They were the forerunners of the, the Amish. We know the Amish. We have them living in our own community. Forerunners of the Amish and the Mennonites. And the reformers persecuted them. Why? Because they had some strange convictions. They withdrew from community. They isolated themselves. They didn't want to have anything to do with the government. And consequently, the Roman government was threatened by them and just kind of treated all Protestants the same, uh, put them all together. And the reformers were wanting to differentiate themselves like we are not them. And so they persecuted them. The other thing that Anabaptists taught was that you need to be rebaptized, that your, your baptism as an infant isn't sufficient. You've got to be rebaptized. And so you know what the reformers said? We'll rebaptize you. We'll put you under the water. We won't bring you back up. I'm not kidding. 5,000 people, our reformed ancestors, killed because they were Anabaptists. It was shameful. It was wicked. And how did they justify it? The exact way the chief priest justified it. The same way the scribes justified it. They thought they were defending and protecting God's people from heresy. Separating the, the tares from the wheat. They were the heroes. At least that's what they were telling themselves. So what about today? I think the danger for us is to assume that that could never happen here. That we would never do that. To do what is wrong in service of what is right. It's never the right time to do the wrong thing. Jesus preached, love your enemies. Some people think that was hyperbole. He was just exaggerating. I don't think so. I think Jesus meant, love your enemies. And if that's how he calls us to treat our enemies, how do you think he calls us to treat our brothers and sisters who maybe think differently, who have some different convictions, who draw some different conclusions? The chief priests and the teachers of the law suppose that they're doing the right thing, but if that's really true, then why are they operating under the cover of darkness? Why are they conspiring on how to pull this off discreetly? Why are they plotting in secret, afraid of the repercussions of how this will all play out? If you need to calculate, if you need to conspire, if you need to rely on deception, operate under the cover of darkness, it's a tell. It's a tell that the thing that you're doing is not right. It's wrong. It's never the right time to do the wrong thing. And now Mark interrupts that story with another story. And he's going to flip it around. It is never the wrong time to do the right thing. So here's the next story, verse 3. While he, Jesus, was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages 
and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, Jesus said. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. It's never the wrong time to do the right thing. This woman did a beautiful thing, Jesus said. Leave her alone. But in the eyes of some of those who were present, this was not a good thing. It was not the right time to be doing what she was doing. They saw this as wasting what could have been used for the, the ministry, for the, the cause, to help the cause. Now, this is a story that is told in, in three Gospels. It's told in Matthew, it's told in Mark, and it's told in John. The story in Matthew and Mark read very similarly. The story in John adds some details that are missing in this story. John gives us a few names. He names this woman that Mark leaves unnamed. This woman is none other than Mary, the sister of Martha, the sister of Lazarus. So think about who this is. This is the same Mary who opened her home many times to the disciples in Jesus and, and offered hospitality. Usually it was her sister who was doing all the work. But this is that Mary. This is the same Mary who Jesus invited to sit at his feet with the disciples. He treated her like a disciple. The same Mary when Martha complained, Lord, tell my sister to help me. The same Mary who Jesus commended and said, she's chosen well to, to sit at my feet and to learn from me. This is the same Mary with whom Jesus wept. When he came and Lazarus, her brother, was dead in a tomb and he found her weeping, Jesus wept with her. It's hard for us to understand how much Mary loved Jesus. I mean, she absolutely loved Jesus. Jesus stood outside the tomb we just sang about, you call my name and I ran out of the grave. That's literally what happened. Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus came out of the grave and Mary watched this all happen. My, my brother who had been dead for several days now brought back to life because of Jesus. She absolutely loved Jesus. She could sing the hymn, I surrender all and not even blush. And so that's what she's doing in this passage. She has an alabaster jar of the finest perfume that you can imagine. It's nard, it's spike marred. Scholars think that it's from India, probably from the Himalayas. How she came to own this, who knows? But I have no doubt it is the most valuable thing that she possesses. This perfume, according to the disciples, could be sold for over 300 denarii. The NIV does us a favor by translating that, saying a year's worth of wages. That's what 300 denarii is, a year's worth of wages. I question, how is that possible? How can a perfume cost so much? And so I, I did a quick Google search, and I found out, yes. And then some. Do you know you can go to Dubai and buy a perfume? It's a unisex perfume, 
slash cologne for $1.3 million. Be a nice stocking stuffer. Anyone wants to get me a gift next Christmas? This is an unbelievable act of worship. Mary anoints Jesus' body with the most valuable thing that she owns. She gives it all away. Sacrifices it all in this act of worship. And she does so joyfully. She does so lovingly. There's no cal calculation. There's no weighing the repercussion of her actions. This is the type of worship that doesn't add up. It doesn't add up. When you love someone or you love something, you do things that don't always add up. Can I get an amen? Yeah. Uh, think, I don't know if this still happens, think when uh, Apple was coming out with their iPhones of people sleeping out on sidewalks for weeks because they wanted to be the first person to get their hands on this new device. That, in my world, that doesn't add up. Uh, when Buffalo Wild Wings here opened, uh, we had a couple guys from our church went out and slept outside. I don't know how many days they did that, maybe just one, uh, because they wanted to be the first customer because the first customer got wings for a year, uh, once every week for a, a year. If you love a, a girl, if you love a boy, you will drive hundreds of miles to spend a few hours with them. You turn around and drive 100 miles back. Love does things that doesn't always add up. Every once in a while, I'll come across an article about how much it costs to raise a child these days. And I came across that this week. In 2022, they were estimating to raise a child from birth through, I'm, I'm guessing, 18, maybe college, 22. They said $310,000 to raise a child. Now, my first reaction when I, I read that was like, what the heck are these parents giving these children? <laughs> like designer clothes, and when they turn 16, are you buying them a brand new pickup truck? But my second reaction is, how ridiculous. Like what parent actually keeps tabs on how much they're spending raising their child? No parent does that. Because love doesn't, doesn't calculate. When you love some things, you do things that, that don't always add up. It's never the wrong time to do the right thing. There were some people present who saw what Mary was doing and boy did they think it was the wrong time and they let her know. In John's gospel, he singles one of them out, Judas Iscariot. But Mark seems to indicate that it wasn't just Judas. There were a number of people present, Mark writes. So we're talking presumably some other disciples as well who are indignant at her actions, so much so that they rebuked her harshly. The word harshly could be translated violently. They were not kind in the least. I can picture them, them pushing her away, trying to, to stop her. What was going on in, in Judah's heart? What was going on in the, the disciples' heart? Well, they're thinking, this is wasteful. How wasteful! This act of worship is how irresponsible to throw the value of this perfume, this money, down the drain just to, to waste it. What about all the poor people? What about all the poor people we could have helped with that money? 
And so John singles Judas out. We don't know exactly what was going on in Judas's heart. If we give him the benefit of the doubt, he was the treasurer of the disciples. He kind of was responsible for the finances. If we give him the benefit of the doubt, he knew the financial strain that they were under. He knew how much money was required to keep them all fed. And he just saw this as a mismanagement of, of their resources. That's giving him the benefit of the doubt. If we remove the benefit of the doubt, maybe he had been padding his own pockets for quite a while from the slush fund. Maybe he saw this as money that, that he could have lined his own pockets with. We don't know. Either way, Jesus is not buying the excuse about the poor. He's not buying their charade. He said, you're always going to have the poor with you. It's great. I commend you for, for wanting to, to minister to the poor. That's what you should be doing. And you can do that tomorrow and you can do that the next day. But today, what this woman is doing, what Mary is doing is the right thing. Jesus said, she poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I would imagine those words stopped everyone in their tracks. This is not just a, an act of worship. This is an anointing. She is preparing me for my burial. In other words, you've heard me talking about this fact that I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die. I really am. And it's about to happen. Like it, it's getting real is how you might say it. This is in, prepare, in preparation for my burial. So the irony, the chief priests, they're scheming, they're plotting. How can we pull this off without anybody noticing so there's no repercussions? How can we capture him? Meanwhile, Jesus is coming to Jerusalem with one intention, to die. He's not trying to evade his captors. He's not trying to run from the cross. That is why he has come. Little do the, the chief priests know that what they're plotting is part of a bigger plan, that God is at work. Now, I don't know if this was the incident that caused Judas to snap. Maybe it was hearing Jesus say that, that you know, I, I really am going to die, and I'm about to die, and he finally gave up the illusion that he wasn't the Messiah he had hoped he would be. Maybe it was the money that offended him, and he wanted to get his money, so he was going to get it one way or another. Whatever the motive, Judas snapped. And so we return to the first story. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this, and they promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. He ended up getting his money. We know it was 30 pieces of silver. So we're invited to do a little comparing and contrasting. Mary gave up money for Jesus. Judas gave up Jesus for money. Mary gave up what was most valuable to her, the thing that she owned that was most valuable to her for something that was even more valuable for Jesus. Judas gave up Jesus, something that wasn't as valuable to him for the thing that was most valuable to him, money. I can't read that and not hear the scripture, you cannot have two masters. You cannot love God and love money because either you're going to love one and hate the other, be devoted to one 
and despise the other. Mary loved God and consequently freely gave of her money. Judas loved money and consequently ended up despising and betraying Jesus. Jesus said, wherever the gospel is preached, this is going to be remembered. What this woman has done is going to be remembered. It's going to be told. And now many years later, we also know that wherever the gospel is preached, Judas is also remembered. It's never the right time to do the wrong thing, and it's never the wrong time to do the right thing. Join me as we pray. Lord, we thank you for Mary, and we do remember her today, Lord. We remember her act of devotion. And Lord, uh, we think about ourselves, knowing that, that sometimes when, when you love something, it doesn't always add up. And certainly, Lord, uh, you ask us to do things that, that we are eager to do, and the world would tell us that it doesn't add up. Why are you giving? Why are you serving? Why are you making life decisions based on and what you sense God calling you to do. But Lord, we do love you and, and we worship you and we want you to be our, our master, our, our only master. And Lord, where there are other things that rival uh, for the throne of our heart, Lord, help us uh, slay those things. We worship you and we worship you alone. We pray this in Jesus' name.